the following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 24, the party returns to Dwarvar, where they're met at the main gate by the Dwarven Lord Cleneth Stonecarver and her seneschal, Baliador Glimorax, who have just been arguing with their adversary, Barok Ironskin. While Harl and Cleneth go off in private conference, the party is taken to the throne room, where they marvel at a tapestry depicting three dwarven heroes from the Age of Legend. Before long, Cleneth returns with her retinue, and the party sits down to a performance by Ursuleth, great-granddaughter to the dwarven lord. There is a presentation of gifts, followed by a traditional dwarven supper. The strange food goes largely untasted due to the sudden appearance of Barok Ironskin, who manages to block the doors before they can shut him out, and then tosses the severed head of Valiador's son, Anelian, upon the steps leading up to the table of the shocked and horrified guests. Chapter 25, Part 1 Day 25, late evening. Party status, Harl, 16 of 16 hit points. Eridine, 8 of 8 hit points. Gyrios, 21 out of 21 hit points. Umura, 13 of 13 hit points. Spells available, Umura has memorized Hold Portal and Shield. You've gone mad breathed Cleneth. Even as she spoke, she reached one hand behind her, stretching her fingers to reach the marble of the throne. Mad? Barak laughed sardonically. No, not mad. A little drunk, maybe. Cleneth's fingers touched the cool stone of the throne. She reached further, feeling for something under one of the marble arms. You'll never take this throne. Cleneth's voice was as hard as the marble. I don't want it, returned Barak. A twisted smile appeared on his face. I only want the horn. Realization dawned in Cleneth's eyes. You found Blacknail's vault, haven't you? Will you damn us all? Barak laughed. <laughs> I'm saving us from becoming slaves to men. For years, I've watched you grind our people into a powder. Forty years you've bowed your head to the fish eaters, and forty more you would do the same before handing the throne to the next stone-covered dog, drooling to lie at a human's feet. 
The people of Durvar will never stand for this, said Kleneth, finding it hard now to keep her voice calm. Everyone else in the room sat still as statues. I don't need them to stand for it. In fact, I'm quite certain they will fall for it. Barak smiled, another ugly smile. You've murdered one of our citizens in cold blood, in plain view, countered the chieftess. I have, I have, replied Barak with mock contrition. But I will not be held to account. You see, last night were these... Barak's bloodied axe poked through the crack in the doorway and pointed at the three humans of the party. Fish eaters were sneaking around our great and ancient halls. An iron trader by the name of Balifer was taking a drink in our common kitchens. Quite a talker this Balifer was. He told me how the human witch woman cast a glamour on a fighting man and bound him to her will. Beside Kleneth, Umura swallowed hard. With his testimony, it should be easy to convince all of Durvar that she put the same spell on me and forced me to behead the young Glimmerax here. Barak now pointed his weapon to the steps, tracing down a smear of blood to the deflated dwarven head. Anelian's face had a grotesque look of frozen ecstasy. Kleneth's hand, still feeling behind her, found what it was looking for. A small stone button hidden under the arm of the throne. After that, the story will go that I resisted the spell, cast it off me, and rushed in to slay the interlopers. I'll be called a hero. Sadly, the story has a bittersweet ending. Although the enemy was slain, I was not in time to save our leader or her friends. Kleneth pushed the button. There was a click behind them from the corner where the gear was stowed. A small grating sound followed, and the lower quarter of the tapestry of the three champions was sucked inward as by a light vacuum against a rectangular opening. From the door, Barak saw all this and frowned. No, I'm afraid I cannot permit any of you to leave. He grasped the side of the great metal door with his free hand and was about to yank it open when one of the guards, thinking fast, threw his long-handled axe through the inside handles. Barak grunted and yanked anyway. It was the sound of cracking wood, but the axe handle held. The other dwarf realized it would not do so for long and slid his weapon through the opposite side, forming an X of axe handles. Again, Barak yanked, but even his strength could not dislodge them. The doors were effectively barred. Umura stood up, preparing to cast her newest spell. She stretched out her hands, ready to cast it, but she knew that, unless the doors were actually closed, her spell of Hold Portal would not work. She could not cast it on the doors while they were open, and Barak's iron tankard blocked them from being fully closed. The Dwemer would fail if she tried. Got some tricks up your sleeve, witch! Barked Barak. He'd noticed that she'd been about to cast a spell. I've dealt with your kind before. Not so tough when you get up close! He backed away a step and brought his battle axe down hard on the crossed handles of the improvised bar. Although the door has been effectively barred for now, this will not last forever against Barok's efforts, especially now that he's started swinging his axe. Even when factoring in the efforts of the two guards trying to pull the doors shut from inside, Barok will almost certainly gain access to the throne room eventually. Barok is old, but he's also a former champion warrior and is immensely strong. He has a strength score of 17. So I'll be rolling to see how long it'll take him to get inside. Let's see. There's no rule for this kind of thing in the BX books. 
I'll say he needs to roll a 19 or greater on a die 20, but that he can add a plus two bonus for his great strength. On a critical fail, the guards will manage to pull the doors shut, and Umura will be able to cast her hold portal spell. On a nat 20, I'll say that Barak throws the doors open with such force that the guards are knocked prone. Here we go. Barak's blade crashes down against the nexus of the axe handles, blocking the door. On a die 20. A 10. A 7. Another 10. A 5. A 17. With the plus 2 bonus, this roll is good enough. Barok's axe sunders the crossed axe handles on his fifth attempt. The guards are staggered, but they keep their feet. Barok kicks the doors open and marches in, his huge barrel chest heaving. Halmir and Anatar Ironskin, along with other members of his family, are right behind him. But during the four missed attempts, the occupants of the room have a few moments to organize and act. First, and without hesitation, Kleneth turns to Harl and grabs him by the shirt. Dramatis Personae, Barak Ironskin. Barak Ironskin was born in a small stone cottage of the kind favored by the dwarves of the foothills. He'd not always lived in the citadel, as his family had not always been a prestigious one. It was largely due to his efforts that they eventually rose to such prominence among his people. When Barak was a child, more than four centuries ago, the dwarves were enjoying a well-earned period of peace and prosperity. In fact, it had been a golden age. Although Dwarvar had been there longer than the memories of any dwarf alive, and even longer than their records could say, it was during this time that so many of its splendors were designed and built. The mines had been expanded, plunging ever deeper into the mountain, and the mountain continued to reward their efforts with rich veins of iron and precious gemstones. Gorgeous works of art, sculptures, tapestries, and ceramics began to fill the Spartan halls, and although the dwarven people never forgot for a moment that they were, first and foremost, a martial people. The finer arts prospered alongside the coarser ones. A great archive was built, and it was here that Barak spent his time as a young man. He held the pen and the chisel long before he carried the axe. As he grew into a young man, Barak spent more and more of his time in these archives. He had all but moved in permanently when the incident occurred. At this time in the history of Merith, the human city of Silmoral had long been founded and had grown into a powerful city-state. It had not yet expanded its borders very far, however. The town, which now went by the name Brannan, had, at that time, been nothing more than a watchtower presiding over a stretch of fertile fields where men raised crops, mostly wheat. The space between those farmlands and the Skundramar was a dangerous wilderness. The south road would not be built for another three centuries. Dwarves did not venture there, and neither did men, for the most part, but occasionally both nations would be forced to defend against raiding goblins, gnolls, or human barbarian tribes. One night, while Barak was finishing up his duties in the cellar beneath his mother's store, he heard the sound of screams and rough laughter above. He knew the cries to be those of his mother's. They had been a common enough sound before his father had died, but the laughter was unfamiliar and, worryingly, did not sound as though it came from a dwarf's throat. Grabbing a shovel and rushing up the stairs, he found a terrible scene. There, inside the single room, lit by fading candlelight, three human men leaned over the crumpled silhouette of his mother. The flickering light of the candle danced upon the human faces, making them look like devils, and their eyes flashed at him. 
He rushed them, screaming murderous curses. He swung the shovel in a ferocious arc that beheaded one of the men, and before they could react, rammed it into the belly of another. He glared at the third raider as he yanked it out and stinking bowels spilled on the floor. This man held a short sword and cleaved toward Barak with a wild overhand. The room seemed to grow dark and Barak was half aware of a wetness on his face. He shoved at the third barbarian who slipped in his companion's guts and fell to the floor. Barak stove in his head with one stomp of his iron-shod boot. Later, as the sun sank below the distant line of smoky rooftops, he erected a stone cairn for his mother in the hills outside of town. Only then did he wash himself clean in a nearby pond. He regarded his wound in the reflection of the water and knew that his left eye would be useless forever. Now that both his father and his mother were gone, Barak was the patriarch of the Ironskin family. Years passed. Raids such as the one that had stolen his mother and his eye were not uncommon. Barak collected dozens of wounds during these skirmishes, but for each one, he put three or four raiders in an early grave. A century rolled by, then two, then three, and little by little, the Ironskin name became a name of veneration and honor. Matching his stride along the road to fame and status was Cleneth Stonecarver. Her reputation as a fighter was sound, but more than that, she was known as a tactician, and then later, a diplomat. When the borders of the young kingdom of Camertine, of which Silmoral was the heart, finally stretched as far as their foothills, the dwarves began a bitter war with the humans of Fort Burke. Cleneth guided them to victory after victory, eventually taking on the mantle of chiefess. After several bitter years, she negotiated a peace with the humans. A short five years ago, the blink of an eye in the life of a dwarf, a man by the name of Marlock had come to govern Burke, and had not only torn down the palisades and cut the city guard in half, but had invited Cleneth to begin a relationship of trade. Cleneth had opened her arms to the men of Burke, but Barok and his family had objected. They distrusted the race of men and harbored deep resentments that they would not let go. Ironically, Barok had spent the last few years isolated with his family in the archives, the place where he had once expected to spend the bulk of his life. Barok rediscovered his obsession with the histories of the dwarves, the heroes of the Age of Legends, and their lost artifacts. Everyone in Dwarvar knew of his idolization of the Hornblower and his desire to locate the champion's fabled lost vault. Here in the archives, among the tablets and the scrolls, his hatred had fermented. One day, a day just like any other, he found something special. There was a chiseled tablet upon which was recorded all that was known of his favorite champion, Mykele Blacknail. He had read it a hundred times, but somehow he had missed this detail. He literally jumped out of his chair when he noticed it. It was a clue to where Blacknail's vault could be found. If he could find the vault, he was fairly certain he could find the horn. Barak Ironskin then knew without a doubt that his whole life had brought him to this one moment. He would find the vault, he would retrieve the horn, and he would use it. But first, he had to remove the stone carvers from the picture. He had no good ideas about how he might do that. He would deal with her allies first and then wait for the appropriate time to take on Cleneth herself. If he were patient, surely an opportunity would come along. Snyder's Return is a tabletop role-playing podcast featuring interviews and a D&D 5e actual play adventure. So you can learn about different game systems and content creation 
while also listening to us disrupt everyday life on the Sword Coast. We release episodes every Tuesday and Thursday on your podcasting platform. So come join us as we improvise, adapt, and overcome. Chapter 25, Part 2, Day 25, Evening. The party's status is unchanged. A shower of sparks erupted from where Barok's axe crashed into those of the guards. Clanith's eyes were bright. You will do as I say now. Take Ursalath to safety. Take her to the Arligwar. She looked meaningfully at the secret passage that had been revealed behind the tapestry. Harl stood and began to protest, but Clenneth cut him off. Harl Stonecarver, for once you will do as I say and not as you please. Barok's axe came slamming down a second time, punctuating her plea with urgency. <laughs> Ursuleth's face was a mask of fear and confusion. Great Grandma. She stammered. What's going on? Harl grabbed Ursuleth by the hand and pulled her towards the opening that had appeared behind the tapestry. At his urging, Eredin, Umura, and Gyrios moved to the corner as well. They picked up their belongings and slipped into the secret tunnel. Wait, please. This can't be happening. By now, Thern was on his feet, mace in hand. His wife was at his side, gripping a dinner knife, point down. Mulgi observed the chaos in apparent delight, with his face split by a gap-toothed grin. He rubbed his mutilated hands together in gleeful expectation of the impending disaster. <laughs> Barok's ruddy face reappeared at the door, above the now bent and scarred handles of the axes barring his way. He shoved again, but the two dwarves held their ground. <laughs> Behind him, others of the Ironskin family could be seen with their weapons waving in the air. Usurper! Spat Cleneth. Murderer! Barak, you must stop this madness! Pigeon Lord, your time has come! He returned. You must be insane! What have you done? Murdering a Solemn of Gruenmog while she was at prayer? You shall bring a curse upon all of our heads. Cleneth turned to Harl, who was lifting the tapestry as the others entered the little secret passageway behind it. Harl, remember, if you need to, there is always the Terigdul. If you are followed, there may be no choice. Well, do not stand on ceremony. Go! Harl's reluctance was apparent but he backed into the opening. Another smashing blow from Barok's axe assaulted their ears, and everyone could hear the axe handles blocking the door splinter under the impact. <laughs> now within the secret passageway, Harl heard the door burst open. He clearly heard Barok's progress up the steps. He even heard him kick poor Anelian's head out of the way as he came. I fear no curses, he said. You simpering weakling. Grunmaw cares not about your affairs or mine. His power is a shadow of what it was. A shadow! As the words were spoken, the floor beneath them rocked as though by a tremor. A sound like distant thunder was felt more than it could be heard. Mulgi, tugging at his patchy beard, let slip another insane laugh. We never should have left the mountain. <laughs> never, never! <laughs> Harl let the tapestry fall back into place behind him and staggered into the narrow tunnel where Ursuleth and the three humans were huddled, terrified. He grabbed the stone edge of the secret door and began to push it closed. Halmir, put a blade in yon pillow dwarf. Barak's deep voice 
became muffled as the door began to slide shut. Anatar, kill those fish eaters. Do not let them escape. Kleneth is mine. Another tremor shook the tunnel as the door clicked shut and the light was gone. In the dark, only Ursuleth could see Harl's look of panic. Cousin, I'm frightened. Go! I'll hold it shut as long as I can. No, said Umura. I can hold the door. You are coming with us. Even in the darkness, she knew where the door was. That was all she needed to cast the spell. Her hands moved, and a pale blue light raced around the perimeter of the door, illuminating its rectangular frame for a brief second before winking out. That should hold. Oh, by the gods, I hope it holds. Another tremor shook the tunnel, and debris fell from the ceiling somewhere further on. Ursuleth, Harl, you'll need to guide us. Umura then felt a small hand grab her own. Come with me. They ran in the dark, first in a straight line, then a sharp left turn, straight again, and another turn, this time 90 degrees to the right. The tunnels were narrow so that they had to run in single file, and angled slightly so they were forced to spend extra effort in the ascent. Later, Harl would explain that the design of the escape tunnels, both the right angle turns and the incline, were meant to protect fleeing dwarves from the missile fire of enemy pursuers by forcing them to shoot up and by breaking their line of sight. The quaking had subsided by the time they reached the end, and the five of them burst into the cold night air. A biting gust of wind swirled around the naturally concealed aperture, and a forlorn howl stretched across the moonlit mountainside. Girios, Umura, Eredin, Harl, and young Ursuleth stopped to catch their breath, having escaped with their lives. The exit they've used is located a fair distance away from and above the main entrance and is concealed from enemy eyes. It provides a view of the mountainside that would have revealed any pursuers, if there were any to be seen. As there are none, Harl surmises that Barak's entire force must be concentrated in the throne room. Harl further believes it likely that Barak did not know about the secret exit and so had expected there to be no survivors. The chance for pursuit is high, but Umura's spell, she says, should hold for at least a little while longer. According to the BX rules, the hold portal spell lasts for two die six turns. Although she doesn't know it, Umura's casting will hold for, oh, a good roll, 10 turns, or an hour and 40 minutes. The party carefully picks their way down the mountainside, guided by the two dwarves wherever the moonlight casts shadows, and following Harl until they reach a pen of goats not far away. There's a small stone hut here where the herdsman lives. In the dark of night, it has a haunted look. Harl motions for the party to wait while he slips into the pen, trying to be as silent as possible in his armor. When he returns, there's something draped around his neck. It's a baby goat, a kid. Its head flops lifelessly against Harl's pauldron as he rejoins the path and motions the others to follow. He offers no explanation, none is necessary. They might be in the wilderness for a long time. The quintet travels long into the night, eventually stopping to rest in the lee of a boulder, a good spot that offers a clear view of the approach while offering decent concealment. They each sleep for a few hours, sharing watch duties. By now, the humans have had two consecutive nights of poor and broken sleep. They're exhausted and will suffer a minus one penalty on to hit and damage rolls until they can get a proper rest. When the sun breaks over the clouds, 
tired as they are, they cannot help but marvel at its beauty once again. Harl will insist that they pass the cloud line before they rest, and nobody argues. But when they make their first camp, sometime about the hour when dawn turns into morning, Gyrios is quickly at prayer. Likewise, Umura wastes no time. She removes her left boot and inspects her ankle. She had a familiar itchy tingle across it the day before, as new understanding broke upon her intellect much as the sun now broke over the cloud tops. She has a new mystic tattoo, and she has a new spell. I'm extremely excited to find out what it will be, as this new spell will be of the second level. As before, I'll consult the BX rules and find the appropriate table. It turns out that, just like with first level spells, there are 12 possible of second level. I'll just fetch a d12 then, and we'll find out what she's learned. The roll is... a 7. So she's learned... Okay. Levitate. What exactly does that do? Let's see. It lasts 6 turns, plus the caster level. Can only be cast on herself, and lets her float up and down at a rate of 20 feet per round. That's all the description says. Not the most glamorous spell, but it could prove useful at some point. With no other spells to choose from, she will memorize that, and also the spell, Light, as part of her morning preparations. For Gyrios, things are a little bit different. He too has increased his powers and now has access to a second first level spell. So far there's really only been one logical choice, Cure Light Wounds. But now that he can hold two potential miracles at the same time, we should spend a moment to see what his options are. In the end, he might be wise to take two Cure Light Wound spells, but let's have a look at his options first. He has eight choices. Cure Light Wounds, Detect Evil, Detect Magic, Light, Protection from Evil, Purify Food and Water, Remove Fear, and Resist Cold. I think the best choice for the group will be a single Cure spell, and the second choice will be the Purification one. Food and Water, especially food, might be a real problem in the coming days and weeks. They have a long, long trek ahead of them. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I like to read out an Apple podcast review at the end of each episode. Today's is from, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Viego. Viego writes refreshing take on the solo RPG hobby. The show is very well made and never did the rules become overbearing or get in the way of the story. Well done. I truly appreciate your taking the time to write that review, Viego. Thank you very, very much. Special gratitude this episode goes to Austin Moraga of the Ironbound Chest, who not only voiced Barak Ironskin, but, in a tale of the Manticore first, co-wrote the character's backstory. Thanks also to both Shannon of Paradise RPG for voicing Kleneth Ironskin and Kirsty Wilson for voicing Kleneth's great-granddaughter, Ursulith. The show has been growing and growing, and, in addition to my wonderful listeners, it is largely due to the people who've lent me their talents. Thank you so very much. If you're interested in rants, random thoughts, character sheets, maps, stuff like that, visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com for extra items. You can also reach me on Twitter at manticoretale, or Instagram at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. Hope to see you there. Of course, there's always good old Gmail, Tale of the Manticore at gmail.com. Please get in touch. The adventure continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls.
we're going to give it another go. It's a bit more, a bit more zing, a bit of zing, zing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ready? Hello, hello. With a hello, no, no, hello. Wait, wait till I get through the whole thing. Wait till. Hello, with a billowing hilltop. Hello, hello. Oh dear, waiting to get through the whole thing. No, no, I mean, I thought that was the whole thing. The whole thing is hello with a billowing hilltop. Okay, that's the whole thing. Yeah? Okay. Okay. That was right. <laughs> uh, that pretty much sums up the show. But if you want to find out any more, you can visit us at www.belowinghilltop.com. Is it com? Does anybody know? <laughs> .org. Is it? It's .com. What do we do? What do we what do we play? There's monsters. Um, does anybody remember? Walking around. I don't know. And- yeah, and we will be delighted if you <laughs> to join us around our table as we play Dungeon. Is it fifth edition? Hello. Yeah, we think so. Yeah. Yes. Yes. We play Dungeons and Dragons. Sorry, that was me. I what was that noise in the background? There will be noises in the background as we play Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition through the classic Paizo adventure path, the Age of Worms. You can expect this. No. Oh! Quite a bit of this. Um, I'm. Com- this, this, I've got a bugbear in my underpants, and one of these. Oh, oh dear! <laughs> we're on Apple Podcasts, and we're on Spotify, and we're on TuneIn, and you can find us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook, uh, and we uh, hope you join us. Thanks very much.